You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Headed Paul in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now we know the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set out the day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus and Areopagite, a woman named Damaris and others with him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks Jonathan for the great welcome. And it was lovely to pray with people beforehand, although not as long as uh, it might have been, seeing I got lost. But um, 
Yeah, it's terrific uh, to, to be with you and to worship with you and um, to get a sense of the, the life of God and the Holy Spirit that's here. And uh, so I'm going to try and bring this to, to bear for, um, like me, for people who have issues. And um, I like the double kind of meaning of that phrase. I presume it was intentional, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's great. I wish I thought of that one myself, and I'll probably use it sometime in the future with, with acknowledgement. But, um, yeah, we are people who have issues. So I, I found myself with an issue uh, Friday week back. Um, my, one of my other jobs is I work for Catholic Social Services Victoria as a senior policy advisor. Um, and we had our first dinner since COVID. And it was a great time and that. And then kind of part of the way through, um, one of the people who works with me, she sort of passed this little book of raffle tickets and, uh, and, and asked me to take one, you know, sort of fill one in and then just pass it on. And it was sort of three for five dollars or something. And, um, and all of a sudden I thought, oh, what should I do about this? And, um, and uh, I thought, oh, blow it. You know, it's kind of, it was a sort of relational kind of thing. It wasn't sort of some kind of, um, and I, and I thought, yeah, I'll just, I'll just fill it out and then pass, pass it on. And then there was some problem. They'd, they'd, um, they'd, put, they'd got too many um, books of these raffle tickets or something and there, were, there weren't enough prizes to go around or something. And so I, I, I sort of um, said something, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give it back or something or whatever if you <laughs> happen to get it. Well, guess who they announced as having won it? <laughs> But it was, to, it was actually to, um, to go to Sacred Heart, um, which is one of our agencies, and, um, and have a meal with the, with the homeless people down there. Which I, and I used to run a, a, um, a homeless ministry uh, behind Collins Street Baptist. And uh, so, so I thought, oh, that'd be great, and I can take the staff down, and that will actually basically be on my last day there. So I think that's kind of a fitting way to kind of end up my, my time there, so um, that's the way that worked out. But if you have any dilemmas or questions about that afterwards, because I hope we'll have time for some questions, I'll uh, explain how I think about that. Because I'm mainly talking about kind of industrialised, large-scale, addictive betting. That's what I'm mainly talking about today. I think there are some distinctions that we can draw between, you know, taking a raffle ticket to support your local school or something like that. I think there are distinctions. But we do face um, differences and challenges about some of these things, and, and a lot of them um, do have a kind of church versus state thing about them in some ways. Because you, you, um, you may not realise, but the greatest gambling addicts that we have are our governments in actual fact, because the way our system works, the federal government has more financial levers that they can press and pull, and taxes, etc., etc., and um, the state governments have to work out what they're going to do about that, and then when something comes, comes along that enables them to raise more money, they often jump on that bandwagon, so we call them vice taxes, so things like tax on smoking or something like that, um, and taxes on gambling. And, and governments of all shapes and sizes get enormous amounts of money 
from that. That's why they're so reluctant to act against them. There was a, um, a Premier, I won't say uh, which party or their name, but um, a fair while ago when um, Crown Casino became basically the biggest game in town, you could say. There were two, two main monuments in Melbourne, the MCG, so that was one, one religion, in a sense, a sports religion, and, uh, and I love my sports, um, and Crown Casino. There were 300 signs in Melbourne at the time pointing to Crown Casino. What kind of statement does that make about uh, Melbourne as a place and the kinds of monuments like Athens and uh, that, that, that stamp a city? the personality, the gods, the worship, the idols, etc., etc. At the time, the Premier uh, took Tim Costello aside and uh, he'd, he took him up to, they, they had a building at the top of Collins Street and top floor of Collins Street and, whoops, sorry, did I knock that down? And, and, uh, took Tim over to the windows and the view right over St Kilda, right over the whole of Melbourne and that. And, and he sort of put his hand on his shoulder, I've heard this from Tim, and, uh, and said, all this could be yours if you just sort of join us in what we're trying to do for the state and that, you know, and, and stop opposing. Um, it's about gambling and Crown Casino and pokies, etc., etc because there was quite a strong coalition of churches and, and other people of goodwill in opposing that at the, at the time. Also at the time, I remember that Premier said, well, look, we'll, um, I think it was to the Anglican Archbishop actually, said, well, you know, you, you look after people's souls and we'll look after their bodies. So you let us just sort of get on with all the running society, etc., etc., and whether we have laws about gambling or whatever. So you let us get on with that and, and you can look after the souls and bury people and things like that. That was a kind of split. It's actually an unbiblical split because the soul means the whole person. Um, and uh, later on wrote about the churches being yesterday's people. They were, they were yesterday's people and all these great things that were going on in that Crown Casino and all of these things, you know. This is what showed who really rules. This is where the Crown is, you know. Not that long after, I think it was about two years after, uh, that Premier lost his job and uh, they lost, very surprisingly, the election. I'm not trying to make a particular political point here, by the way, only a week out. <laughs> I want to be careful about that. Um, but the Archbishop of the time, it was Keith, Keith Rayner, couldn't resist. And he said, well, you know, at one point the Premier said, you know, the churches were yesterday's people. Well, the Premier is now yesterday's people or yesterday's person. So I think sometimes we get a little bit down or we think, oh, things are going against us or, you know, there's all these different issues or whatever. I think it's too easy to, to get that way. I, I think that God's word is clear. I think God's word lasts. And I think it does actually make change. And we shouldn't be discouraged when we see 
a lot of these things going on in our society in different ways. I want to try and um, basically go through this topic with three, three particular points, and, and Jonathan may remember these but, um, from ethics classes. But the, the first one, there are three C's, actually, so it's easy to remember, and I better remember to actually... Um, can I operate this from up here? The, or will someone else operate it? Okay. So we'll just go to here. So, uh, yeah, that's the actual subtitle I've given this. The pokies play you and the ads want your kids. Okay. So just moving along to the next one. Thanks. Um, it's a little bit small even for me to read from up here. But, um, but basically looking at um, these three C's, the first one is consequences. Okay, consequences and costs from our actions. And looking at those things, a, a, a good clue about, um, yeah, whether we ought to do something. They're not the most important, I would say, but they are still important, uh, particularly if the other two that I'm going to say are kind of balanced in some way. The second one's about character, um, what, what we are on the inside, who we are, um, about our being, um, our habits, our motivations, those kinds of things. And the third one is about God's commands. And because commands or rules, etc., and um, how they affect our lives. So in terms of consequences, when we start to look at that, what we find in regards to gambling is that the people who are really hit hard are the poor. Um, and, and if you do some analysis of some of these things, you find that um, it's usually in the outer suburbs and regions especially, where there's a lot of um, people with uh, pokies. I, I went out to Gippsland to see my, my daughter and um, my grandson recently, and I, I came back by train and all along the railway line, you would just see clubs with their pokies and other things sort of advertised along the, along the railway line. It was, it was huge. There's places like Maui and other places like that. People with very, um, you know, a lot of people on, on welfare, a lot of people quite poor, places that have been really hit hard um, with coal mining closing, things like that. And so you see that kind of... Um, those kinds of things. Um, the Jesuit Social Services, which is the one, of, one of the main groups with Catholic Social Services, they have a dropping off the edge project which shows you can go and pick an area and you will see the levels of gambling or a whole range of other things. Perhaps the number of suicides. Now there's about 400 suicides per annum in Australia through gambling. I think if you add it on the, the family members and others who are affected by it, who might actually suicide themselves in some cases, then you'd find that would extend quite a bit as well. There's enormous costs to these things. These aren't about just individual choice. They're, they're about things that affect a whole range of people because we're, we're like fingers on a hand vertically relate to God, but we're connected to each other. 
and the things that we do will have profound effects on each other. So we see the way this works out in, in, in some of those kinds of areas. Um, families, employers that people might swindle money from in order to keep their gambling habits go up. You often see um, stories about that. Uh, friends, victims of crime to finance the addiction, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they're not usually from the middle class. Some, some are. Some, some are even upper class in some, some cases. But they're not usually the middle class because um, no one ever really made it into the middle class by gambling in the end. So there's a kind of class element to it as well. Gambling's basically a tax on the poor. And as I said, the state government tends to be hooked on that. Um, it also affects um, things like welfare budgets because people who end up broke, they need to get onto welfare or whatever, and so it affects that. It affects savings. Savings go down the tube in relationship to that. Um, people lose their houses. Families break down. Child abuse. Uh, children left in casino car parks. There used to be a lot of horror stories about that on hot days, some of which actually died. Houses having to be sold. Um, murder, suicides, um, just a whole range of different things in a, in a casino economy, really. And it's, it's incredibly tragic. Domestic violence. You know, people talk about coercive um, violence, where uh, it's usually the man um, and takes strict control of all the monies, etc., etc. The wife doesn't get much access to any of that. It's all controlled really strictly. And you can see the problems that could, that could develop out of that where someone can be secretly gambling, the, the issues that come up, the, fight, the fights, etc., etc., and the violence that could come out of those kinds of situations. And those kinds of things have been monitored as well. John Fain wrote an article about some of that as well recently. And domestic violence is one of the issues that, that uh, we look at at Catholic Social Services. Um, so there's a bunch of things like that that we can see. And um, charitable giving goes down. You can't give to charity if you, if, you know, basically you're blowing it on the, on the pokies or, or whatever. So there's a whole range of things like that are go that are going on. Um, secondly, if you look at character. Now, the way... Th things were argued in terms of uh, justifying gambling was that it's people's individual choice. It's their hard-won money and therefore they should be allowed to spend it any way they like because they're making their own kind of rational choice. We used to call it uh, economic rationalism uh, many years ago, um, neoliberalism these days. And so it's justified in terms of that. But do you realise the amount of science, psychology, etc., etc., that the people who make the pokies basically put in to basically getting people addicted? There's a huge amount that goes into that. I, I used to, um, I came up with the ethical framework for um, uh, a, a Christian um, superannuation fund, Christian super. And we looked at the gambling issue and that, and you could see 
um, the poker machine manufacturers. There's one, there's one family that basically is responsible for most of them in Australia, and we have more pokies than any other place in the world. Um, Australia, we are just about the heaviest gamblers of anywhere else in the world. We are really seriously hooked. So how do you talk about choice? Choices are always under constraint in certain ways. And these choices are under the constraint of things that are designed to addict us. Poker machines are called one-armed one bandits for, for a good reason. Um, you don't have clocks in any of those places because they don't want you to know how long you've spent there. It's usually in the dark, uh, relatively in the dark, bright lights, etc., etc. sense of excitement, everything's focused on the machine. That's how the system operates. The other aspect of it is the connections are increasingly made between gaming in a general sense of relatively harmless kind of gaming on the internet, etc., etc. You know, people actually use the term gaming for gambling as well, and those links that can be made if people really get hooked into it. And so we see that, but particularly in relationship to children and the enormous amount of advertising that is aimed at them. And uh, 900 and, well, it's about 985, so roughly 1,000 ads every uh, week are on TV in relationship to um, sports-based gambling now. So we've got to look at it in a reasonably sophisticated kind of way and realise the way that works. It's all part of surveillance capitalism. There's a wonderful book called Surveillance Capitalism and, and that is the way it's so much of our lives, our privacy, our, um, our, our choices that we make are all, all of that's being fed back to headquarters of the sort of big um, San Francisco and Seattle kind of companies so that they analyse our choices. Now, it may not be specifically aimed, although if you make certain choices, sometimes you ever had the experience where you go and do something and um, it might be, I'm taking my wife to a movie tonight, so uh, you, you do something like that and then, uh, then all of a sudden you, you'll see various choices that may come up afterwards about you may like this or whatever and, and there's various ways that operates. You know, when you have your own, um, they've got various names, but, you know, the sort of household manager kind of thing online, etc. and you say, you know, um, you put on the, this, this piece of music or whatever and it comes on, um, all that feeds back as well. And our kids have got those things. Sometimes our kids have got the, uh, in, their own, in their own bedrooms, etc. And all of this is kind of coming up with a picture of our consumer habits, and you talked about consumerism. Um, in the previous week. And so we, we get hooked into this kind of lifestyle and gambling is just a part of that and which feedback is going back and, and it's changing our motivations. There's a whole stack of, of sophisticated psychology that goes into this and masses of data by which they can come up with a certain kind of picture of our motivations and the way we operate. And that affects our character. 
It becomes part of that kind of composite picture of who we are and, uh, and our, our way of being. Now, the third one that I want to focus on, and, and you could sum a lot of that up with greed, in a sense, um, the, the desire for more and ways in which um, we see through our habits, it gets fed back to us in ways that will make us want more of those particular things and give us direction in those ways. Now, the third one I want uh, to look at after looking at uh, character, and particularly, um, I should have mentioned problem gamblers, because for all the kind of lip service that is paid about problem gamblers and the little, little thing that you get at the bottom, you know, oh, gamble responsibly, um, at the end of the masses and masses of uh, ads that you've had, um, problem gambling is what makes the money. The um, lip service is given about that. The Crown has recently been fined, I think, 120 million, I think, plus another 20 million, because they simply have not fulfilled their, their agreement of their contract um, to not target problem gamblers. But the way, that, the way that's done is you give people early wins. You get an early win, so it will hook you. You get freebies so that you'll keep going back. You can get a, but, a free bus to go there. You can have all of these different sorts of things. And um, yes, you get the early win, but then it's completely sort of arbitrary as to how it works. So that there isn't a pattern to it, but you just keep thinking just one more and then I'm going to actually get that early win that I had before. And, and we, we get hooked in in those sorts of ways. And that's the way the whole sort of system operates. And so it becomes, we become habituated to it. Now the third point I want to make particularly is about commandments from, from God. And, and the kinds of, as Paul, you may have wondered why I had Acts um, down there. Well, I think Acts 17 in particular, Paul's speech at Athens where Paul wanders around like a philosopher, like Socrates, he's painted as, by, by Luke. And Socrates was, was regarded as having corrupted the youth and having introduced new gods to Athens. And so Paul ends up on trial for something like that. And, and Socrates was uh, basically um, sentenced back in his, his day and he eventually suicided. But... Um, so Paul is in a very difficult kind of situation there. But Paul looks around and he sees their monuments. He walks around the city and he studies it. We ought to all do this. And he, he sees there's a, the Jupiter, there's um, Zeus, there's all these gods, these great monuments and a, and a statue to an unknown god. And Paul talks about those things and says that God is not made with hands. God is not sort of um, deaf and, and, and blind and, and, and dumb. And that's not meant as an anti-disability thing in any way. Please don't get me wrong in that. But, um, but God is not inanimate. God is living. In whom we live and move and have our being. And... So Paul is critiquing that. Imagine what would he say about Melbourne? 300 signs pointing to, pointing to Crown Casino. 
Who wears the crown? If I can uh, have that one up, please. Who wears the crown in our city? Is it God? Is it Jesus? Is it the MCG and sport? We might have thought that was relatively innocent and pure. But even the 10 AFL, Melbourne AFL clubs are sick and tired of the amount of gambling advertising. It's coming from headquarters right at the very top of the AFL. What a dreadful legacy for the, the, the head of the AFL to leave behind him um, as, as he sort of finishes up um, with them. Who really wears a crown? And the question for us is, you know, who really wears a crown in our lives? Who do we really worship? Who is, who is the, the, we can say king now. <laughs> um, we, we have a king in some sense, but the true and real king, who is that? These are the questions that, that Paul really raises for, for us. And, and who as parents, and we're thinking of our kids, and we think of the, the sports ads that are targeted at them, that have normalised gambling for children. I have two friends, one, one who spoke here, um, Mike Bird spoke here, and uh, Mike, Mike Bird, it's, it's fairly public that he was raised in a, in a family where there was, where there was gambling. His, his father was a, a compulsive gambler and a violent man, and, uh, and he, he grew up in a very, very difficult kind of context. Um, another theologian uh, was a close friend of mine. Uh, we were in, in Footscray wandering around recently um, as we were about to supervise a student of ours, and, uh, and he happened to let drop that uh, yeah, he used to wander around and uh, there when he was homeless. And he was homeless because his father was a gambler. And often it's related to, can be a, related to drink as well. Often there can be kind of multiple kinds of um, addictions and one that you do to, to comfort you when you've stuffed up or when you feel so shamed by it, then you'll go and get drunk or whatever. Those, those sorts of things have a cycle to them. And that's what it had done to him. And then one day his teenage daughter said to him, she was on the train, I think, coming home from, from school, and, uh, and, and all, the, all the guys were, were talking about their, their bets, their sports bets, their multis. Because you know what's, what's replaced mateship in Australian society? Getting a multi together. But if you really get addicted to that and you really, you know, get attached to that, are your mates still going to be around? Unlikely. How many people during COVID got completely attached to online betting? Because they didn't have much contact with other people, etc., or their business had gone down or they'd been sacked or, or whatever. And this became the kind of easy, handy kind of thing that you can do by yourself and uh, no one would uh, know about it. You know, the great vices today, particularly online ones, think of porn. And why, is it, why has it become so um, everywhere in some sense? Because you can do it privately. Just as the gambling issue can be done privately online. 
Um, I remember the, the difference that I think can be illustrated in terms of this, in, in, in terms of both those kinds of issues. Is, um, Woody Allen um, had a movie once, and Woody Allen sort of plays the sort of the awkward New Yorker who goes in and he's um, and he goes into a, a newsagent and there's a bunch of magazines and he goes, oh, I'll get Newsweek and I'll get, he's sort of talking to himself and that, and I'll get Time magazine and then he smuggles another magazine in and then I'll get this and then he smuggles another one in and then he goes up to the, up to the counter and, and the guy's sort of counting them up and you know how much this is going to cost and then he gets to a certain point and he says, hey Charlie, how much is orgasm? And, and Woody just kind of shrinks and collapses it's kind of, in this kind of mess. Because back in those days, if you had Playboy or something like that, I, I remember discovering the Playboys in my father's bedroom drawer once when I was about 10 or 12. It shocked the life out of me. Um, but, you know, there was, there was shame attached to it. You know, you had to cross a certain boundary, public boundary in some ways, in relationship to those things. Now there isn't. So we have these great buildings, these monuments to our idols. And scripture says we're not to worship idols. Whether it's in public ways or whether it's in private ways, we're not to worship idols. And the images, which are the kind of things that feed into those idols. And we get those images being bounced off us, whether it's from the poker machine and the constant promise of winning something, or whether it's being bounced off at, at us in terms of sports betting as well and the allure of that and doing that with our, with our mates. When we look at these things, it might sound like a very bleak picture I'm painting, but let me give you some hope. The, the passage that we didn't have read out is from John 19, verse 34, I think, where Jesus says, and I've always thought of this as um, almost proof of Jesus' divinity. After we have strung Jesus up, he's been tortured, he's been just hor horrific things done to Jesus. He's taken the weight of the world on his shoulders, the world of the world's sin and evil and addiction and suffering. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then it says, and they gambled for his clothes, which is an echo of a psalm. And they gambled for his clothes. So Jesus is up there on the cross, and then you've got the men down down below gambling for his garments. An ultimate kind of indignity that Jesus took upon himself. And yet he is dying for those very Roman soldiers there and those gamblers there and name whatever particular sins we have. And Jesus has died for those. I've... Um, I've read accounts um, in researching this um, about yeah, various forms of therapy and that, and, and there are various good things to help people with gambling 
and, um, and there are gambling helplines and, and other things like that. And uh, there's Lifeline and, and other sorts of groups and things like that. But they often talk about, and one particular one I was talking about, well, it's, it's about self-worth. And so you've got to build up the person's self-worth. But what can compare with the worth that the Son of God died for you out of love for you and for us? Maybe gambling, it may be some other addictive thing that you may have going on in your life, but that the Son of God was willing to die for us, that we had such worth to him as his images, that he will do that for us. There's a lot more that could be said, um, just other practical sorts of things about um, basically blocking the TV, um, advertising, and that places like England, they might only have about 10 a week apparently, and various other places in, in Europe. Um, there's having agreements where you, where you will only spend a certain amount of money each week, so you have a card and you're sort of bound to that. Now you can go through some convoluted process to try and change that, that, that card, um, but that helps limit things. There are a bunch of good kind of proposals that people are putting together. Two ministers in New South Wales have worked closely together in terms of trying to do, do some of this. And so there are things that there's, there's a momentum building up about change in relationship to this. But I want to keep a, a fairly strong focus on where does it start in terms of our character, our worth and who we are before Jesus himself and, uh, and really hold that hope out to us at, at these times. I think there's a little bit of time for some questions. Is that okay, Jonathan? We've still got, we've got... Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm wondering if there's any, any questions that people might like to, to ask. Um, and, and it also suggests that, you know, these are difficult things. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd suggest if you're, if you're grappling with some of this stuff, catch up with Jonathan or other people um, in, in the church, in the leadership of the church or, or, or whatever, uh, for some conversation, you know, confidential conversation about some of this stuff. And uh, so you know there's someone standing alongside you. Um, in relationship to that, uh, that would be a really good thing. But any questions? Yeah, I hadn't thought particularly of that one, but yeah, he, he had thrown it away. Um, you know, yeah. Probably a fair bit on, on gambling and women, I think, was part of it. And, um, and, and with all the shame, because there's a lot of shame that, that gets attached to this. And so um, the wonderful thing about the, the parable of the prodigal son is actually about the parable of the prodigal God. Because God is utterly prodigal and almost wasteful. So we think, oh, you know, tit for tat, you know, merit and all these sorts of things and, and that, you know. And God is just so extravagant. And, and in the midst of a, a situation of, of grave shame where the son had probably, um, he'd, he'd taken, he demanded his inheritance early. So it's a kind of drop, drop dead dad kind of thing and get out of my way so I can take over. Um, 
and, and he comes back in and, and instead of him having to walk and run the gauntlet of, of all the village elders, etc., etc., and the gossip and the shame, etc., etc., the father and Jewish fathers, you know, they've, they've got long robes, you know, they look very elegant, you know, etc., etc., et you know, you're not designed for running. If you're in the war, it says, gird up your loins, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of, you, you make them into a pair of shorts or something almost, you know, if you're going into battle. Um, and the father sees him, he's been looking for him, afar off, he looks for him. You know, he's in a far country, he's a long way away, it's a huge distance, and, and, he, and he runs out to greet him, to embrace him. Look up Rembrandt's picture of the prodigal son, it's magnificent. Em- embracing the father, um, the father embracing him. So thanks, thanks for that, that's, that's a wonderful passage to mention. Okay, in, in, into that social con- media kind of context. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think... Okay, let me... The story about someone who's addicted, the rich young ruler. And it mentions, at least in one of the Gospels, he's young. And the rich young ruler who... Um, basically, he's obeyed all the commandments except the one not to covet. So he's caught up in greed... And, um, and he doesn't really want to mix it with the poor, etc. And he turns away and Jesus looks at him with love, um, it says. And then all the disciples say, oh, you know, but, you know, what about us? You know, because there was a sort of thing some people thought, well, if you're rich, then that shows that you're okay, God's blessed you and you're saved, etc. And uh, they say, um, what about us? You know, we've given up this, we've given up wives, we've given up land, we've given up our crops, all, all of this. And Jesus says, there's not one person here who's given up wives or land or, or whatever who won't receive a uh, hundred times more in this life and a thousand times more in the next. Um, but what, what's he talking about? He's, he's actually talking about the riches of relationships. He's talking about the family that they have become, the family of his disciples. He's welcomed this rich young ruler to come to join this family, which is mixed. Some people better off, but plenty of poor ones there. And for a richer form of mateship, that's male and female, ultimately, and, and that we offer that to people. And you can think of that too, like you've, you've talked about the issues of same sex and other things like that. One of, the, one of the issues in that is how do we show them that, that love and the love of God and the grace of God and so we're not just talking about it? How do, how do we offer that? How do we offer that to the person who's caught up in gambling? How do we offer that to, to teens who are, who are so anxious and who suffer online peer review you know, like I'm an academic from back by background and that, you know, peer review is always a scary thing. Well, they're going through daily constant peer review, likes, etc., etc. 
online? And how do, how do we offer full-blooded and fleshed love and care no matter what? And how do we train our children in that? How do we train our, peer, our adolescents in terms of that? How, how do we do that? Um, we nearly lost two children during their teen years. Um, so I'm saying this pretty much from the heart. Um, what, how, do we, how do we offer that? Now, they're, they're, they're ratty teenagers, but they're, but they're magnificent parents, and um, we have five grandkids now. Um, um, but, yeah, um, to be able to d display the grace of God in those, in, in those contexts, I think we, we need to do that, and we need, um, and they need it at a peer level, as well as a mentor level, and unofficial aunts and uncles kind of level, etc., etc. So, for instance, our, our son, um, um, who has bipolar disorder, but but he's a yeah. He was on he was on sixty minutes once as a as a textbook recovery case. Um, it's called um, what's it called? Oh, the term. Yeah, um, just forgotten the name of the title, but. Um, yeah, that was from six months pot smoking and my mother's mental illness genes. My mother had um, yeah, two, two major um, nervous breakdowns and shock treatment when I was a teenager. So I went hell, through hell as a teenager. But recently we had a 50th anniversary for my school and I thought I'd been left out. You know, they didn't want me there or whatever or, or because I'd been overseas and interstate or whatever. Um, this is going back to Sid Sydney, and I went. It was a fantastic healing time for me to, to, to go back there because I'd been a very teary teenager and, and uh, I think I went through my own kind of nervous breakdown. My, my mother was going through, through hers. Um, but, yeah, but to know the grace of God um, as a teenager um, was an enormously healing thing for me. Um, and I, th I think, yeah, for us to show that grace um, in whatever ways we can. Um, and, yeah, there's no substitute for that. Um, thanks, I might leave it at that.